Welcome to the Grateful Thread Podcast, where we're creating a community for cool quilting newbies and experienced quilters to unite. So pull up a seat because you can always sit with us. We're your hosts. I'm Lacey of Messy Quilts. And I'm Ashlyn of Urban Dwell Studio. Hi, Ash. (laughs) (laughs) We've got a doozy for you guys. It's a good one today. (laughs) But first, before we get started, I want to take a moment and read one of your reviews. This is from KJL624 on Apple Podcasts. New fave. The Grateful Thread has quickly become my new favorite. When a new episode drops, I listen to it before anything else on my feed. The honest, real, funny, and practical feel of Lacey and Ashen really is just like sitting with old friends. I'm so cute. (laughs) I'm really emotional today, but I'm also just tearing up because that means the world to us. Mm -hmm. And another thing that means the world to us is that you guys have helped us reach our goal. (laughs) <laughs> I wish you have Nick overlay some sort of like guitar for that. Sound engineer, you got this one. Um, yes, we hit that 50 uh, rating goal that we had set. Thank you guys so, so much. Um, that being said, we now upped it. We will be upholding our end of the deal, obviously. obviously. I will start on a new quilt. Lacey will quilt it up and we'll be sharing that process with you and auctioning it off. Um, we haven't quite picked a charity or yet, but we will. We have it. We have to just narrow it down a little bit. Yeah. Maybe um, we'll do like a poll on ooh, Instagram. That's a great idea. We'll have do our thread, helps, thread heads help us. Yeah. Thread hells. Thread hells. <laughs> ooh. Does that make us an explicit podcast? Well, maybe. Oh, shoot. This is family. Family friendly. <laughs> Oh, that being said, we want to just give a heads up. We do talk about intimacy briefly in this episode. It is nothing graphic or juicy, but if that subject makes you uncomfortable listening with little ears around, you may want to just save it for your sewing with headphones (laughs) moment. Um, No real question should come up, but I know that everybody has a different spot in that regard. So we wanted to give you a heads up because... Our guest today is an artist, and he has just captivated our quilting community with his beautiful and moving work, his focus on building community, and the joy that radiates from each video he puts out in the world is just... So good. It's unbeatable. (laughs) Ladies and mostly ladies, (laughs) we would love to introduce you to our new friend, Zach Foster. Oh, that's good there we go. Yay. Got it. Hi, Zach. Hi. So who's Ashlyn? Who's Lacey? I'm Ashlyn. I'm Lacey. Okay. Very nice to meet both of you. <laughs> uh, same. Yeah. <laughs> We're also trying not to say big fan. Yeah. Or fangirly. <laughs> so that yeah, was one right. goal. And like already I'm like a little Oops. bit. Yeah. <laughs> fail. <laughs> big fail. So <laughs> thanks. Wow. For it, can, it can only go up from here. Right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> We're just gonna jump right into it. Yeah, I don't wanna. Yeah, we don't keep you. Time. Okay, so no, listen, I'm, I'm just sitting here sewing, chilling, and talking about sewing. Like, what else? What else is there to do? <laughs> right. Well, no rush on my got, account. We got four inches of snow yesterday, mm-hmm. so we are hunkered in sewing as well. So yeah. let's just hunker together. Where are y'all at? Uh, Utah. Utah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. So, um, so start us off. Can you tell us a bit about, about yourself and what you do? Tell me about you. 
Wow. First date. Here we go. <laughs> uh, my name is Zach Foster. I am a quilter. I am a cheerleader on the Quilty Nook for about 900 people. I am a storyteller. I am someone who picks random pieces of fabric up off the street, <laughs> even if they're sitting in some unidentifiable liquid, because you can always wash it off. I am from the South. I am... My mother's oldest son, her number one, she says, by birth order, but we know that I'm her number favorite. One. Number one. We're all number ones. <laughs> and I am sitting right now in Brooklyn, New York. And due to the way that the earth has currently lined itself up with the sun, there are little rainbows all across the room I'm sitting in because there's a prism in our window. And so you just caught me at just the right time. Awesome. <laughs> Your video the other day with it on your forehead was just so cute. I could not catch it. I'm like, here I am talking to people. And there's a rainbow right there. <laughs> like smack dab in your forehead. Yeah. Just double down. When it comes to rainbows, just double down. And you can never yeah, go yeah. wrong. Yeah, no. yeah. You've been blessed by the rainbow. <laughs> All right. Uh, can you describe your journey into quilting? What was that? Was it a moment? Was it a slow transition? I, I mean, I don't want to put you in a box, but you're from the South. Was that a part of your growing up? <laughs> it was not really. I mean, I'm from a textile state. North Carolina has a long history of textiles. I mean, pre-NAFTA, pre-1990s, you know, but um, my family didn't really quilt. That said, I do have one hands-on quilt from my great-grandmother that you can, I just posted it yesterday yeah. because my grandma her daughter just turned 107 yesterday. <laughs> and so, yeah. So, but, but other than that one quilt that I didn't even know about until recently, uh, I didn't even know that I had family quilting family history. So I would say that I made my first quilt in the third grade when we were having Laura Ingalls Wilder day, which is now probably a complicated <laughs> thing to talk about, <laughs> but I didn't choose a curriculum back then. Um, and one of our stations, because we got to rotate between all these different stations, was a quilt top station. We made patchwork. And it was just a real simple four square situation that I pieced together. But I remember feeling so proud of that at such a tender young age that I took it home. I asked my mom for more fabric so I could put a back on it and make a pillow out of it. Oh. So that was my very first quilt. Now, did I make another quilt? Again, not until college. Yeah, we have a similar like first quilt and then nothing. let it die for yeah. a bit. <laughs> big old break. Yeah, yeah, big old break. We were on a break. <laughs> <laughs> it's not you, it's me. Yeah. Another yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, but, you know, I did. I did make my second quilt in college and it was from bedsheets. So that's, you know, old bedsheets. So true to form to what I'm working with today. And it was a checkerboard pattern. And I remember getting really kind of down on myself because I wanted to make a bed size quilt. And none of the corners all matched up real good in the beginning. You know the story. You know where I'm going. They matched up real good in the beginning. But the further you get into the quilt top, the further and further those points get off. So mm -hmm. I thought I was a, a failed quilter. And if you're listening to me now and you feel like a failed quilter, please know that you don't have to make your points match. Yep. They don't. Yep. Have to. They really don't. So I, I stopped quilting again for about another decade. And then in my early 30s, because I'm 42 now. In my early 30s, my friends started having kids and I wanted to make them something special. 
you know, and so I started, I made my first little baby quilt and that was the first quilt that I brought to completion, you know, like the traditional definition, three layers, binding the whole thing. Right. And that first quilt was a pretty humble affair, but it also, I look at that and I think, oh, that's in a lot of ways that still, those are still the quilts I'm making today. Right. Like mm, salvage material, wonky. Cause again, points didn't match. That's all right. <laughs> Not important not important and just fun and vibrant and so much love. And so even though I don't make, it was a pinwheel quilt, even though I'm not making pinwheel quilts anymore, generally, <laughs> um, I can look back and see a lot of the roots of the, the essential roots of who I am as a quilter. I can see in those earliest pieces, which is, I don't know, some, it's cool to see that like Sometimes the more, the more we change, the more we say the same. And we can look back at our, our progress and our arc over time and see that as much does evolve in our practice, some things have always been true. Yeah, very true. I love that. Very true. So what is currently inspiring you right now? <laughs> this bath towel in my lap. I am <laughs> working on a piece. I'll show y'all and then maybe we can get a picture for the folks yeah. at home. But um, I have a good friend, a quilter down in Kentucky, Madeline Bella is her name. And she one night was mending bath towels. And I had never heard of someone do this before, but she showed me the most beautiful bath towel I'd ever seen because it, it like, a, I don't know what had happened to it. Like a dog is started chewing on the corner or something. So it was all frayed on one corner. And that was a Navy blue towel. She took a light blue towel to mend in those patches. And it was just so gorgeous. Then I'm like, oh, I need to work bath towels into my quilts. And so now I'm working on a piece uh, for my Southern white amnesia body of work. I know we're going to get there in a little bit, so I'll save us <laughs> the, the details. <laughs> details. Um, but yeah, so I'm sewing with this bath towel. And what I'm seeing is I have two layers of bath towel on top of each other. One is kind of like a light sage green and the other one's kind of like a darker Kelpie green. And what I hadn't anticipated was how all the little I don't know. In my mind, I call them cilia. I think that's what, isn't that what you call like in the lining of your throat? Like all those little finger-like yeah, appendages? Like uh -huh. Yeah. Whatever that is, yeah. that's what I'm calling them on my mind. And so I'm loving how they all, all those little, mm -hmm, just kind of like fuzz together. That little hair. Right? <laughs> like a little hairy yeah. party. Yeah. Yeah, a little hairy party all the way yeah. around all the applique. So I'm really loving it. I'm taking this bath out and I'm appliquing the applique bath towel down into an old vintage quilt with a lot of butterflies on it. Cause why not? Cause why not? So why when not? do you decide that it's finished? When do you decide when a project is finished? It's a big one. I know. <laughs> For me, quilts are about telling stories. So when I feel like the story, when enough is done in the quilt that it tells the part of the story that it needs to tell, then it's done. How about that? Yeah. No, I tell a lot of people when I, when I make quilts for people, I, I just say, let's get to this spot because then the quilt will tell me what it needs next. Like we're not going to yeah. decide what it looks like there. Cause we'll decide when we get there. That's yeah. right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to do like what you find inspiring about the quilting community? What do you find? Are you asking me or do you want to ask the question? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is, I have like so many questions for you. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> oh, so, let's get to them. Let's get to every single one. What do I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to zoom in a little bit on that question. I'm, now I'm going to answer this question two ways. What do I find inspiring about the quilting community? And then 
what do I find inspiring about folks on the Nook? Because for me, that's even a smaller community that I'm part of. Um, in the quilting community, I am proud that we as quilters are part of, I'm about to give you a hot take. We are part of the original zero waste craft, right? Like we are the people who have been talking about zero waste before zero waste was even an idea, right? Or a hashtag. Um, we know how to be scrappy and how to save and how to make the most out of things. And that's a skill that carries over into other parts of our lives as well. It carries over into how we relate to one another, how we conduct ourselves on our, in our jobs, how we walk down the street. It's just, it's incredible. Quilters are breed apart. I, I've, mm, I was about to say, I've never met a quilter I didn't like. <laughs> I'm sure if I thought hard enough, I could come up with one or maybe two. Next episode, tune in. (laughs) I will never name those names. Sorry. (laughs) Um, No, but in general, y'all know what I mean. I mean, quilters, if you're someone who's interested in quilts, I think it's safe to make certain assumptions that we have in common. One, you are interested in bringing comfort to other people. Two, you're interested in expressing love to other people. And three, you're interested in doing it in a way that's in a very practical and tangible sense. And so if that's, if I know that to be true about you, then, then we can get down, we can hang out. You know? mm-hmm. So that's what I love about the quilting community. Now, the Nook is a whole nother thing. If you never heard of the Nook, that's the community that I, I host, right? That I, I organize. And it's an online group. We've been around for about a year and a half now. And we have monthly challenges and sewing circles and workshops and all kinds of things. But what's interesting to me is that we've been around long enough now that there's kind of like this, this, this kind of quilter that is drawn to the nook. That's really funny to me. Funny because it's, it's also me, you know, like uh, the, the word that a lot of people throw around is feral, that we're a bunch of feral quilters. We just do whatever we want to do with that quilt and nobody's going to say nothing about it. Um, I, I think that we're also very supportive and very encouraging of one another that we're so interested in not just pushing ourselves with materials, but exploring who we are as people and who we are as makers and doing that through our work and encouraging one another to do it. So it's like everything I love about the quilting community times 10, maybe, you know, it's just a beautiful thing. Yeah. That's what I was going to say is uh, it's, it's a common theme through what you teach, especially on Instagram. Um, So you have Nook. What other ways do you have that you help the community, the quilting community? Um, The seam side, soft bulk, Instagram lives. Oh yeah. Come, tell us about all those. Your Instagram lives are like your, a 10. Your Instagram lives are so Thank good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I'd like to do more of those. I just need to like make it a habit or something. Mm-hmm. I just, yeah. So I, I do like going live because generally when I go live, it's because I got, you know, like one of those like automated quilting task to accomplish, right? Like I have a okay. bunch of ironing to do. I have a bunch of cutting to do. I have a bunch of just piecing to do or whatever it is. And I might as well be talking to somebody while I do it, you know, and so I'll go live and, you know, people just shoot me the craziest, randomest and also <laughs> most thoughtful questions. And I'll sit there not knowing what they're about to ask and <laughs> pontificate and try to put together some kind of coherent answer. And uh, we have a good time. We yeah. really do. So if you ever see me live, hop on and ask me something random. It'll, it'll be good. Yep. Can't promise you'll be uh, intelligible, but it'll be entertaining. <laughs> it's definitely. Uh, so that's one thing I do. 
Yeah. I also, I, I, was that Lacey? Sorry. <laughs> the soft bulk. Tell us about that one. <laughs> Let's go to soft bulk next because that was, that was born out of the pandemic and it's the brainchild of Luke Haynes, which I'm sure a lot of folks listen to know entropy's work on Instagram. Um, Luke talked to me and Heidi Parks, another very good friend of mine, way back at the beginning of the pandemic and said, folks, we should just three of us get together and talk quilts. And so we were just going to do a one-off situation, but it's so popular. And we had such a good like vibe and connection between the three of us that we did it again the next month and the next month. And we did it two years every month without fail. Um, we had 20, I think it's just short of maybe 24, maybe we had like 23 episodes or something. Um, and we talked to some wonderful people, you know, I, and y'all are probably experiencing this too, that like, um, I'll often tell people that I started a podcast cause I just want an excuse to reach out to folks and talk to people that I want to talk to anyway, yeah. you know? <laughs> yep. And so That's it, what it was, we're doing yeah. right now. Oh, is that what's happening right now? Yeah. Uh-huh. Is that what this is? <laughs> yeah. Podcast with Foster on the air. <laughs> <laughs> So, so yeah, so soft bulk and then my podcast theme side, it's, it's the same thing, right? Like it's a way to, it's an excuse to have the kinds of conversations I want to have with the kinds of people I want to have those conversations with in a way that is, is long form, right? Where we can go deeper than just a caption or a 60 second reel or something like that. Yep. So good. Yeah, that is so good. Yeah. Um, how long have you been a full-time artist? Tell us about your previous career as well. I, I just love that that's a part of your journey into quilting, I guess. I want to speak for a minute to all the teachers listening <laughs> to this. God bless you. Well, it is a noble career. I remember when I was, I taught for 18 years and I remember when I was in the classroom wondering what, what professional skill set did I have that could translate into some other occupation? Because I was one of those people, I came from a long line of teachers. So I, I feel like I have just that natural disposition to be an educator, but I wasn't 100. I, I just knew I wasn't in the place for me in life. I didn't know what place was any better. And I found myself wondering like, what am I even what, what professional skills am I developing here in the classroom that I could take somewhere else? It felt like such a highly specific thing. Well, it turns out I was learning, well, I'm not going to say something that y'all are going to later bleep out, but I was learning a ton of stuff. I was learning how to community build. I was learning about how to have relevant conversations, how to make kind of crazy ideas or uninteresting ideas suddenly relevant and engaging and interesting. I knew how to get people talking. I knew how to break down complex ideas to make them something that's digestible and understandable for folks, um, which is what I'm trying to do with Southern White Amnesia right now, fingers mm -hmm. crossed. Um, I was just learning how to connect with people. It's a short umbrella answer for all these other skills that I've, I now realize that I was developing. And I realized how much I had learned in the classroom when I left the classroom. And I started the nook and started doing some other things. And that's when I'm like, oh, that was an incredibly rich time that I wasn't just teaching those 18 years. I was also learning and I was also being taught. Um, so, yeah, so I did that for 18 years. You know, I started teaching high school Spanish, if you're curious. I started teaching. 
thinking that I would just do it till I figured out what it was I really wanted to do. <laughs> uh huh. You do the math. That took a very long time, <laughs> but now I'm doing the thing that I really want to do, and it's cool. Like I'm in a beautiful chapter of life right now, and um. So yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. I I think that if I could tell myself. My, my classroom self, if I could go back in time to any one of those many days in those 18 years and just say, Zach, you are learning more in this moment than you realize. And you are getting skills and tools and tricks that are laying a foundation for a beautiful future life. So just hang in there, keep doing it. You're going to figure it out. Right. That's what I would say to myself. So I was teaching 18 years. Then pandemic hit. And in New York City, especially, crazy was like extra crazy. And I was like, I just gotta, I gotta get, I gotta get, you know? So about halfway through the pandemic, when crazy got even crazier, <laughs> I began to see the exit, you know? I had a good friend for many years who said, Zach, you'll know when it's time to leave teaching when you see the opportunity. Until then, if you don't see the exit door, it's not time to walk out. It's so obvious at the time, but so helpful. It was such a good piece of wisdom for me at the moment. So when I saw that exit door, which was maybe I could turnkey all these things I've learned as a teacher and educator into community organizing, I hopped on it. And I told my partner, I was like, uh, baby, if I can make this thing happen, I had like a little dollar amount in my mind, you know, it's like, if, if I can get X number of dollars signed up by the end of the month, I'm quitting teaching. I did not hit that goal and I quit teaching anyway. <laughs> I, like, I just knew it could happen. I just knew it could happen. I felt it in my bones and my bones have not been wrong, you know? So uh, I, I've been now retired quote unquote from teaching for about 18 months. And um, it's a pretty good life. It's a pretty good life. It's, it's a lot of work. I remember my friend Wade, who was also self-employed years ago, told me, the best thing about being self-employed is you get to pick which 80 hours of the week you want to work. And it does kind of feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. Are you usually at what, I, like 8 p.m. to midnight? <laughs> yeah, but it's oh, all crammed in for like, like or Friday to Sunday. That's yeah. our 80 hours. That's our 80 hours. <laughs> you do the math. It's not 80 hours. It's insane. It's insane. It's fun though. And so I, it is fun. It is fun. And at least in my case, I feel like even though I was working two jobs simultaneously for about a decade, now I'm only working one job. I'm just working a lot. And I'm able to catch glimpses of a future where I'm not working 80 hours a week. And those glimpses are what keep me motivated. Awesome. Do you miss the classroom? Do you have moments where you miss it? Or not so much? Nope. Not so much. Y'all <laughs> nope. can't see me. I'm shaking my head real <laughs> slow. I'm doing the slow shake. <laughs> I tell you what. I tell you what. Um... I love people. I think that's evident, but I'm also someone with a limited social battery that just, it just uh, empties out real fast. And so by the end of each day of teaching, I was just exhausted. And so that's how I knew that I wasn't spending, spending my energies in, in the way that I was meant to spend my energies. Right. I don't think, I don't think this is Zach in 2023 saying this, I don't think that if we're spending our energy the way that we optimally would, that we would be exhausted at the end of the day. 
I think that everything would be working in alignment and what we were doing would be commensurate with the amount of energy that we had. So now at this point in my life where I'm at, um, I'm not exhausted. I'm still working a lot, but I'm not exhausted. And that's a good feeling because I know that, you know, every once in a while people tell me things like, oh, I'm sure your students miss you. I'm sure yes, it was a loss to the school when you left. And all of that I'm sure is true. But at the same time, I want that person to know I was not my best self in the classroom. The person that you're talking to now that makes you want to say what you just said is my best self, right? Yeah, and great, so great. Um, it feels good to know what stepping into this space feels like mm-hmm. and to be able to try to figure out ways to help other people step into that same mm-hmm. kind of space for themselves, whatever that looks like. It's going to be different for everybody, yeah. right? You do that so well. You do it so well. Mm-hmm. So Thank good. You. awesome let's move into like your series and we'd love to have you talk about your sex quilt series that was the thing that i was like i want to talk about this on the podcast (laughs) so badly for so many reasons mostly because Uh, i'm a little and if it makes people mad then fine (laughs) wait mostly because you're what i'm sorry cut out i'm a rebel (laughs) oh yeah I love it. Just talk um, about normal things with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can't do that. Boring. Talk about so normal sex things. quilts. <laughs> sex quilts is a body of work that I plan on adding to over a long period of time, over the course of a life. Because I believe, here's a tip for you, if, you, if you're looking for tips. Um, <laughs> we'll take them. That if if we we can observe and witness our bandwidth, what kinds of things do we find ourselves thinking about? What kinds of things do we find ourselves energized about? Those are the topics we should be working with in our creative work. <laughs> so I guess that means one of the things that occupies a, a large portion of my bandwidth is sexual energy. I guess that is the connection we can make there. Um, I think that's the case because as a creative person, I'm really interested in tapping into that energy that brings something new into the world, that is syncretized, the word I want, I don't know, that brings two disparate parts together and creates a new whole. That's what I'm interested in with my quilts, and that's what I'm interested in in other areas of my life. And so it seemed to make sense to bring objects that are made for the bedroom into the bedroom and explore where those two overlap. Right. Right. And so in the sex quilt series, there's a variety of kinds of quilts. Um, Some of them are quilts that are essentially portraits of lovers um, where I reflect on mm, their energy, their offerings, what time with them is like, and try to translate that into fabric. They're, are quilts where, oh, I was thinking about the early, early days of monkeypox, which was such a scary time. I was born in 1980, which means I was, I mean, less than 10 years old when people first started talking about HIV AIDS in the in the gay community. And so I wouldn't have thought that I carried much, um, I don't want to say trauma because that feels 
not like the right word. I was, I was just carrying a lot of energy, a lot of heavy energy around the, what I heard about HIV AIDS when I was a young kid. And I didn't know that as an adult. Yeah. And so then all of a sudden monkeypox breaks out. I'm like, oh, I started feeling these very like real physical sensations about um, just how scary our existence and our life is here on this planet, how fragile everything is. And uh, I felt instantly connected with all of my gay and queer grandfathers, grandmothers who had to live through the horrors of the late 80s and the early 90s without a country who had their back. And that was a lot just to take in, you know, oh, and by the way, it was just after a very large pandemic. So it's just like, there's just a lot <laughs> happening on mine. It's all, I made a monkey pox quilt. That was one of them. I made a quilt one night that uh, I thought was banging. I thought it looked so good. And then I flipped the switch <laughs> in the studio the next day. And I was like, oh, God, who put those colors together? And I'm like, yeah, that's that's been me in the bedroom before. You know, like, <laughs> so there's all kinds. <laughs> there's all kinds of quilts in that collection. And we'll see where they go in the future. <laughs> I love that. Um, I also want to talk about the Southern White Amnesia series that you're working on as well. I think I think Me that's too. a <laughs> you do too. Good. Um, I yeah. think I think being white is an interesting. <laughs> it's an interesting place to in this country at this time and place um i'm not gonna say it's hard because i think we have had the easiest part of history i think those of us that are trying to do better and learn have this conundrum of wanting to do that in the best and most respectful way and i think the way that you are doing that is a really beautiful way to share about your series thank you ashlyn um I would say the propulsion of this series into being came from a life-changing conversation that I had with Dr. Carolyn Maslumi in Lincoln, Nebraska. I had gone to the International Cult Museum to speak back in November of 2022. And then she was speaking the next night because her collection was going on display. They had a big exhibit of many of her quilts that she'd collected. And so she gave a talk the following night after I had spoken. And then I'm walking through, looking at the different quilts she's collected. And one after another, after another, I see these quilters who have taken their lived experience and turned it inside out into textiles, into something public, into something that told a story about what their life on this planet had been like. And it got me thinking about what my lived experience is and how can I translate that into quilts in a way that would be helpful in untangling some of these uh, some of these structures that my ancestors put into place that continue to affect people of color today. And so I think I, I've tried various things in the past to address racial inequality in our culture, and they've 
uh, been a little clumsy and heavy handed and they, they missed the mark a little bit. But I feel like the Southern white amnesia is, is the flow, right? It is the, for me at this point in time, it is the right way to be addressing this issue issue, which is I am making a series of quilts based on whiteness, based on the lived experience of a white person who is in the middle of exploring their own ancestry and their own family's involvement with the institution of slavery. About five years ago, uh, I, I'm the family historian in my family. Okay, my uh, there's two of them. My uncle James is also a family historian. <laughs> we'll give you the, we'll um, give you the crown. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, and, and I ran across the first records that some of my family down in South Carolina had enslaved people. And that very first record, all it was, was my family member's name and then a list of the people that they owned. And the only thing you can tell about those people from this record is whether they were black or mulatto, whether they were male or female, and then the number of their age. No names, no birthplace, no parents' names, nothing like that. And so to see humans that were so stripped down to some demographic bare bones, just essential facts, and then tied to someone who I shared DNA with, it was all just, it was, it was a punch in the gut. I didn't know what to do with it. And so I went and talked to somebody in my family. I went and talked to somebody in my family and I asked, um, so did we ever enslave anybody? And they said, nope, <laughs> just like that. And then I think we would know. And I said, uh-huh, that's it. How is it that, that you can look across the South today and see a lot of white people? Some of those people, if not most of those people, statistically have to be related to the folks who did the enslaving back in the first couple of centuries of our, of our country. And so ever since then, I have been trying to tease apart this story and to present different facets of, of, of what this story is. I think of it like a jewel, even though the story itself is not a jewel, but a multifaceted thing. And so each piece in this collection is telling a different part of that story. So the very first piece, the one I think is uh, kind of the opener. Like, so this is also the first time I should say that I'm thinking about building quilts I should say them building a show. Like I've never thought about quilts and how they would be displayed in a physical space and how they would relate to one another and how I could position them so they would continue developing the narrative. Never done that before this series. So the very first piece you would see upon entering this space that will one day exist is this piece that just says, I think we would know. And it's applique letters on top of a bunch of sunbonnet sous, which if you're familiar with that traditional quilt pattern, shows this very round and healthy little girl who's turned to the side and she's wearing a bonnet so big that you can't see her face. And she has a friend, overall Sam, who always is depicted with having his back to us. And so what I'm trying to do with that combination of text to quilt pattern is to say, you think we would know 
But why would we? We're not even looking in the right direction. We are actually turned around backwards so as not to engage. So why would we know? And so that's what I'm trying to do is to take off the bonnet and turn around a little bit and just look things square in the eyes and and just tell the stories as I, as I understand the stories to be. And so that's one piece. I've got a, I got a couple church banners in this collection because I grew up in the Southern Baptist tradition. And I remember spending long hours in the middle of sermons on Sunday morning, (laughs) studying these beautiful hangings in the sanctuary. And so some of them have some of the quilts have turned into church banners. One of them is this bath towel here in my lap. I've written uh, a fragment of an allegory that explains how whiteness entered into this world. And it's all, it all hinges on, well, I'll tell you, the first line is this. It says, Some of our children were born with snakes in their cribs. Snakes that would whisper whiteness into their ears, saying things like, all of this belongs to you. Everyone could have all of this if they worked hard like you. And with pieces like that, I'm trying to get white folks, because this whole collection, the audience is white folks, right? Like if we believe that racism is a problem for the people who hold racist beliefs, and in this case, it's white folks, then it's white folks who have to do the work to undo it. And so what I'm trying to get us doing, myself included, because I have deep programming of my own to do, is to realize that I've had this little mythical snake in my ear my entire life telling me these little things. And to recognize those messages that are not truth, I've just heard them so many times, I assume them to be true, and counter them with what is actually true. So there's a piece about that. What else I got for you? Oh, there's one more I'll tell you is there is a, I call it a memories recreation. I'll probably think of a better term for it one of these days, but the same family I was telling you about where I first discovered the records for having enslaved people, they have a family burial ground down in South Carolina. And a couple of years ago, I went down to check it out. It's now on private property, deep in the woods. It wasn't woods, of course, at the time when they were buried, but woods have just grown up around the tombstones and all of that in the meantime. And the the local lady that took me back there, I wouldn't have been able to find, find it on my own. It's that grown in. We're walking around, we're looking at things, and you got to know that this family cemetery is walled off. He's just big hunks of granite, you know, this big square cemetery. And in the back of that square, you see a bunch of real nice tombstones, you know, lots of engraving Bible verses and doves and crosses and stuff, names and dates and all that. And those are my ancestors. But then you start looking around at what looks like the empty part of that walled off area. And you start noticing these slight little indentions in the ground. that are four or five feet long. And then if you keep looking, you might notice that at one end of those indentions, there's another rough hewn rock just kind of sitting there and how all these indentions just have a similar rough hewn rock just sitting there as if it were a headstone. And I asked the lady about that. She says, yeah, we assume those are slave graves. So, but then you start looking around outside the wall and there's more of those indentions in the ground with just a rough hewn stone out in the woods too. And 
I left with a lot of feelings that day, but one of the feelings I had, one of the questions I had was just how messed up it all was, even in the afterlife, that white folks were the gatekeepers, all this. My ancestors were the ones who said, okay, this black person can be buried inside the wall with us, but those black people got to be buried outside the wall. Who knows what the calculus was? Who knows what the distinction was? I mean, we can theorize. Who knows? But it's messed up. And so I recreated that burial ground from memory and layered on top of it five crosses and five names for the five enslaved folks that I know some of those family owned at the time. So their names are now brought into the conversation. Um, yeah, there's, there's several elements there, but I'll, I'll just let folks check out that quote on their own and they can study that on my website if they want to see it. Okay. I like that. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. It's just, yeah. I love that you are using your art to process that. And I, I think that a lot of people have that. I think we would know. Mm-hmm. And for me, myself, I don't have family from early American times. We came over later, but I'm still white. And I've always used that as a like dismissal. And that's my, my key out of that um, burden to bear of being white. And like, yeah, but my ancestors didn't do that. And until really the last few years, I mean, it's been a little bit longer, but re- realizing all of the systems in place that have made things so much easier for me because I am white and that didn't have to come from my ancestors owning slaves personally. And I think your work is going to help point people in that direction as well. Absolutely. Good job. Good work. I hope so. I mean, here's another tip if you're looking for a tip and that is just work with your own story, work with your own lived experience. It is so profound what you've been through on this planet that you can never get to the bottom of it, no matter how much you have to say about it, you know? So just keep exploring and digging and you'll find something that's worth talking to other folks about. And I would say, just like you, I, I would echo and then offer a parallel to Ashlyn, to what you said that just like your ancestors didn't enslave people as white people, we still benefit your, right. you and your, your family still benefits from the systems that my ancestors put into place as a parallel Black people that come to this country, even after emancipation, are still being subjected to structures that have been put in place for the descendants of African slaves. Mm -hmm. And so they're still living in a system, too, where they have to deal with the reality of things that were set up 200, 300, 400 years ago. And And we can work to undo it because society is nothing more than the sum of the parts. Right. And you and me, we're, we're the parts, you know? <laughs> There's a lot of defensiveness that goes into having any part of that be part of your family history. But I think just acknowledging it feels heavy for a lot of people and having to unravel that wherever you are in that journey is, it's always a trip. You can say a phrase that you think is just commonplace in our society and the roots of that phrase go so much deeper than a pop culture reference from 2005, you know? Right. 
Yeah, right. Awesome. Do you want to pivot? Yeah. Okay. Um, let's pivot to you got to do a residency last summer. What was that experience like? Tell us about your residency. <laughs> I've got to do three residencies three. in my life. Yeah, so extra fun. (laughs) The big, yeah, 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 it was, it was. So when I first left the classroom, I simultaneously applied for my first artist residency and got it within a month of quitting. So it just felt like divine stamp of approval. And that was to John C. Campbell Folk School down in Western North Carolina, which is a craft school dedicated to preserving arts and craft traditions, right? Especially of the Appalachian region. And I was our first resident. So I got to go down there for four months, which turned into five months because, well, I guess they liked me slash. Why not? <laughs> I was the first one. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> and so that, that was a blast. I worked on a series there called My Homecoming Quilts, in which I examined my shifting relationship to my home state of North Carolina. There were three three quilts in this triptych, as triptychs often have threes. The first one was all uh, it was a, a meditation on the excitement of leaving home when i left north carolina for new york in 2008 how excited i was how much energy there was life was taken off and you see that in the bright pinwheels and there's like metallic fabrics and neon colors all kinds of stuff there that kind of point you in that direction the middle quilt is that moment where i found myself having lived in new york for a number of years and things would happen that just kind of trip my trigger and I would begin missing home. And for me, the the pivotal moment or the, the touchstone I keep going back to is I was at a Jason Isbell concert and he's singing some line about hand-painted signs in the grocery store window and I start crying <laughs> because here's this country music artist talking about just describing a scene that I can picture from the place I grew up. And I realized in that moment how much I missed it. You know, now that was many years ago. So, and I'm still in New York. So fast forward to the third piece of that quilt, of that series, which is the homecoming quilt itself. And that piece is a, a, future, a future meditation on what it's going to be like to come home. That it's going to be, I imagine, largely positive, but also not without a sense of its own attendant loss that comes with... Anytime we pick one thing, we're saying no to another thing, right? So when I move back home, I will also be saying no to some beautiful things here in New York, which would be tough. But it's made up of that quilt. It's made up of a bunch of community signature blocks that, you know, might be a tradition that folks are familiar with where like maybe a Sunday school classroom, this is real big back in the 20s and 30s, would each each person would take a block and stitch their signature in it and they put them all together into one big quilt. Well, somebody had given me these signature blocks that had been in a quilt together, but then someone cut them out and separated them. So I got all the separated blocks <laughs> and it was just the weirdest, funkiest energy, you know? So it, yeah, it felt appropriate to me to bring those people back into community together while I was thinking about homecoming and that that last iteration of, of that phase. So I'm still not home yet. Well, I'm still not in, in my birth home, I guess I should say, because New York is also home in many ways, but uh, but I'm getting there. I'm getting there. And so that was the first residency. The second one I worked for a textile recycling place in Morganton, North Carolina, which is in the Piedmont foothills. <laughs> and that was fun because I got to work with a company that makes 
t-shirt memory quilts. They have it all like they got it all down to a factory science, you know, so they have a big die cut machine that just cuts these perfect squares out of the center of the t-shirt and they just use the squares and the patchwork and they scrap or recycle the remainder of the t-shirt. Well, I took the remainders and worked them into quilt tops, made a whole series called afterlife. That's what I called it. <laughs> Thinking of afterlife in a couple of different ways, the afterlife of our textiles when we're done using them, as a shirt or whatnot. Then also the fact that these were, had gone into memory quilts. So the person that wore them is probably no longer alive. So there's that connotation as well. And then third residency was at Penland School of Craft, which is also in Western North Carolina. It's right outside of Asheville. It's a beautiful place. I was a winter resident there for one month. And that's where I was able to really dedicate some time to this Southern White Amnesia project. I made four out of the current six pieces while I was at Penland. So it's a real right community wow. place. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So fun. Yeah. Everybody's it lucky was. to have you. Yeah. <laughs> the summer one last year in particular, I was just living vicariously through you when you would do your lives and it was just like chimes and burgers. And <laughs> it was like you were at summer camp without all of us. <laughs> <laughs> let's go back. Okay, mm -hmm. let's do it. We're doing quilt camp. Yeah. <laughs> Cool campus oh, cool. Yep. <laughs> I love it. All right. So what projects do you have coming up or what do you have that you want our community to check out in particular? Well, I'm continuing to develop the Southern White Indonesia project there. I don't know how many pieces are going to be in that collection. I'm just thankful that no one quilt has to tell the entire story. So until the story gets told, I can just keep making quilts. Um, I don't know exactly which piece is going to be next, although I, I have I have some ideas there. Um, one piece that I would really like to make, I'm working my way there, building up my gumption, y'all, which is <laughs> I would like to, you know, sometimes I think I make quilts just to have excuses to talk to people. And so sometimes I think I'm doing Southern White Amnesia just so I can talk to my aunts and uncles. Right. <laughs> and, like you're working uh, on a project. Could you answer a few questions? Yeah. Because it seems to me, my own family, without going too deep in my own family history, is a pretty good case study for a Southern white family. And in that, um, my mom's side of the family, very wealthy, right? They're the ones that have been going to, they've had access to higher education for the last four or five generations, right? My grandmother, 107, went to Furman, right? Like it's at a time when women weren't going to, to college, right? That's, that's that side of family. My dad's side of family, just poor farmers, I mean, they were lucky enough to have land to squat on and food in their bellies. You know, that's that's all they had. And so my own family history, you can kind of, and I should say, as a parallel, my dad was a first generation college student. So when my mom's side of the family had been going to college for generations, my dad was the first in his family. And so when we talk about intergenerational wealth, that's what we're talking about. My mom's side of the family had a jump start on so many things that my dad's side of the family never did until he came in, came around. So... Yeah, I want to do a piece on inter intergenerational wealth, and I really want to involve my mom's side of the family. <laughs> and the way I see it playing out is this: I'm assuming none, none of them are going to listen to this podcast. <laughs> so, so secret yeah, safe here, right? what I want to do. With, <laughs> oh no! <laughs> Here's what I want to do with them, and that is, I want to share the research I've been doing, which I've already started doing. They know a lot of the different kinds of research I found. But then I also want them to take a certain degree of ownership 
of our family's in his, involvement with this part of history. And so I'm devising a quilt that is inspired by, I've taken a page out of Brian Stevenson's book, who was the founder of the lynching memorial down in Birmingham, right? And for folks who are familiar with the lynching memorial, there is this beautiful project that Brian Stevenson came up with in which for every county in this country where a lynching of a black person took place, there is a column that's about the height of a human being suspended from the ceiling in this outdoor pavilion as part of the memorial, as part of the museum. There is a sister column identical out to the side of the pavilion. And those counties are invited to take their column with them as long as they display it publicly somewhere and with a description as to what it is. And what I think is so genius about what Stevenson did here is that it's win-win either way, right? If the county takes their column back home, then people in the place that they live learn more about their own local history. If the county does not choose to take their column, well, it remains a, a certain mark of shame waiting for them at the lynching memorial. So there's no getting away from it, right? And so I'm, I'm, I tried to think about like, how could I tap into that genius model? And so I'm thinking that I would present this research I've been doing to my, to my family. And then in return for acknowledging that they have read this research, <laughs> read this report, <laughs> that they would contribute an item of clothing that I could turn into a quilt. If they turn it in, it's like they're saying, yes, I understand what my family has done in the past and that part of what I have in terms of wealth and opportunity comes from the institution of slavery. So if they give me that, well, cool. They agree with, they agree to the acknowledgement when. I have if read and acknowledged the terms and conditions. Exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> if they don't, they still get represented in the quilt but I'll find the fabric for them. And I imagine it would be like, I don't know, white or some other, some color, right? Mm -hmm. So every time you see that color in the quilt, you know, that's a family member that was presented with the facts and chose not to acknowledge them versus these family members were presented with the same facts and have chosen to acknowledge them. And not in a way to put any shame on anybody. I am not in the business of shame or guilt because that's what makes it hard for us to talk about these things. You mm -hmm. alluded to that a few minutes ago, Ashton. I'm not interested in shaming. So it's not like I'm going to put anybody, any of my family members' names on these flocks, right? <laughs> but I am interested in people knowing the truth. I am interested in giving some, not voice, but giving presence and acknowledgement to people whose existences are only recorded on a piece of paper that only exists because they were owned by some of my ancestors, right? Like it just... It's all a mess. So I, I'm I'm only interested in getting those stories out and then knowing that once you've heard a story, you can never forget it, right? So once I share these findings with my family in this case, they may not choose to participate in this particular project, but they'll know and they'll never forget. Win-win. Mm -hmm. Win-win. That's so good. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yes, yeah, serious. It's so good. <laughs> Taking so much of your time, and we really appreciate you. Mm -hmm.
Um, if you guys want to check out Zach Foster, Wibbly Golf, his all the things in our show notes. There's so many. <laughs> all the all the opportunities to connect with this lovely human. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share with them? I just want to say thank you for this opportunity to to meet with y'all, to sit with y'all for an hour, to give me the chance to tell some of my favorite stories. You know, I carry these stories around with me all the time. So it's nice to be able to get them out in the world a little bit. Um, and yeah, I, I, I am already so I'm a subscriber to this podcast and I'm already so impressed. I'm already so impressed. So thank y'all for doing what you're doing. I look forward to future episodes. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> all right. Bye friend. Oh my gosh. We just interviewed Zach Foster. Is that what happened? I blacked out. <laughs> right? Talk about bucket list. <laughs> um, and I think my adrenaline is finally wearing down. Yeah, same. It's been going all day. I'm glad I can finally breathe a little bit better. Mm -hmm. That was that was fangirl central. So It was. And I was trying not to tell him I was a fangirl, <laughs> but I did. <laughs> but he is just as lovely in person as he is on Instagram. Yeah. Every single ounce. Like, so kind. So mm -hmm. thoughtful. Yeah. Um, I definitely learned a lot from him as far as his individual unique style and all of his stories about where he came from. It's going to be fun to watch his journey. Yeah. I love just hearing about his process and how he's able to just flow and articulate what his design process is like. Yeah. I loved it. Yep. Yep. So thanks Zach. You're amazing. Yep, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we have some housekeeping to do. Sure do. Um, we have, uh, don't forget our merch. Mm -hmm. We had, um, a couple people by the thread life went a little crazy mm -hmm. the last couple weeks, which has been kind of fun to watch. Yeah. So tag <laughs> us on the gram with your shirt. And then, um, I think Ash is working on a couple new designs yep. for the summer. Yep. Some summer. Yeah, we'll have a few new ones coming up. So be watching for those. Um, I think that's all for yeah. housekeeping. Um, you can find us. I'm Ashlyn at Urban Dwell Studio. I'm Lacey at Messy Quilts. And then you can find our friend Zach Foster. We will link his Instagram in our show notes. Yep. Bye, Bye Threadheads. Threadheads. The Grateful Thread Podcast is created, hosted, and produced by Ashlyn Downs and Lacey Messerly. Our sound engineer is Nicholas Downs. Don't forget that we need your help in reaching our new goal of 100 five-star ratings. And I would so appreciate if you could donate 10 seconds of your time to click those five stars and leave a quick comment saying where you're listening from. It doesn't have to be a long or overly flattering one. Just uh, listening from Fargo, North Dakota will suffice. <laughs> and then click that submit button and we'll be so grateful. Thank you guys. We're so, so happy that you guys are liking what you're hearing. Bye, Bye Threadheads. Threadheads.